Welcome to Hispanic Marketing and Public Relations, HispanicMPR.com. This is Elena DelVal, and my guest is Diane DeResta, CSP, who is author of Knockout Presentations, How to Deliver Your Message with Power, Punch, and Pizzazz. Today we will discuss why public speaking is the new competitive advantage. Diane is founder and chief executive officer of Duresta Communications, Inc., where she coaches leaders on communications and public speaking to gain business influence and impact. She serves as adjunct faculty, is an international speaker and guest lecturer on four continents. Diane's experience ranges from working with CEOs to media training, sports, and entertainment celebrities. Prior to starting her business, Diane worked for the New York City Board of Education as a speech therapist, served as a training specialist for Salman Brothers, and was assistant vice president of Drexel Burnham's International Sales and Training Trading Program. She speaks to corporate women's initiatives to build confidence in their leadership. Diane, welcome. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. What is CSP, before we get started on the topic itself, tell us a little bit about that because I understand it's a big deal. <laughs> it is. I actually have a CSP and a CCC. A CCC is a Certificate of Clinical Competence in Speech Pathology. As a professional speaker, I'm a certified speaking professional or CSP. And the way you get that is it's a designation from National Speakers Association and about 12% of speakers worldwide have this. So I was very excited and honored to get it. There, it's a big process. You have to document a number of talks that you've given over a 10-year period, how much you were paid, who it was for, how many people in the audience, and then you have to get 20 of your clients to fill out an evaluation on you, and then you submit a one-hour talk in front of a live audience. So it, it's a cumbersome pro a process, and that's why so many people don't go for that designation. But I'm glad I got it. That was in 2015. Let's start with something really basic. What do we mean when we say public speaking? Is there a generally accepted definition? Is that like Toastmasters gathering that you speak with? Is it if you're in a stadium with 10,000 people? What exactly is public speaking? I'm glad you asked that question because there is a misconception about what it is. People think that public speaking is standing on a stage in front of 100 people and giving a talk or a speech. No, it's not. I had the situation many years ago. I had given a talk, and then I went into the ladies' room. And by the way, if you want to find out what people really think of your presentation, go into the restroom. So I overheard this woman talking, and she said about me, I thought she was really good, but I don't public speak. And I felt like shaking her by the shoulders because I asked people, do you leave voicemails? That is public speaking. Do you give meeting updates? That is public speaking. So whenever you're speaking to a group or two, uh, two or more, you're speaking in public. So it's really important for people to hone their skills. And here's what's different today, Elena. Years ago, you could get away without having the skill and people in a leadership role would designate it to their junior people on their staff because they didn't want to do it. We all have heard the 
the stats about it being the number one fear. And that came, it's an old study from 1977 Book of Lists. They looked at all of the type types of fears, and public speaking made the top of the list as number one, even beating the fear of death. So this is not new. We've all heard of this. But it's really a very critical skill because what's different today is everything has become commoditized, and it's so more competitive than ever before that, first of all, for you to be heard above the noise is a big challenge. But you have to be able to step up and speak because what you create, even if you are a an entrepreneur, a founder, or you created something new, it's just a matter of time before someone in another company can reproduce that. So what separates you from the pack is your presentation. I can't emphasize that enough. There is nobody who is listening to this call who is not impacted by good presentation skills. Whether you're going on an interview, making a sale, asking for a raise, that's all public speaking, and people don't realize it. There's a structure that will help you be more effective. There is a delivery style, an air of confidence that helps people to be more successful in getting what they want. So it's communicating, but it's not one-on-one. It's to smaller groups or larger groups. So it is really key today that everybody have this skill. And I can give you examples of how speaking today actually has a return on investment. There is a hard dollar return. And when I go into organizations, because I work with different corporations, they'll always say to me, well, you do soft skills. And yes, I'm not doing technology, but my comeback to them is it may be seemingly a soft skill, but it has hardcore results. So let me give you an example of a CEO that I coached. He wanted to convince the executive committee to fund the building of a vaccine facility. Now, this building would cost $300 million. So this was a big ask. In addition, there was no guarantee of success once it was built, and they would have to go through three years of clinical trials before they could return, get a return because this was a healthcare company. So he worked with me. He hired me to coach him, and we did everything from looking at the PowerPoint to getting inside the minds of the executive committee to how he would hook them from the beginning, from the structure, from the sequence. End result is he got the funding, and that $300 million investment turned into a $1 billion success. So that is not small change, and that is strictly from a presentation. Yes, you have to have your content and you have to be an expert, but had he not been able to present his case, he wouldn't have gotten the funding, and then the company would have lost out on that profit. So think about it when you are wanting to, a promotion or you want a raise. That's money in your pocket, and people don't make the connection that it's your public speaking, it's your presentation skills, it's your confidence that will get you there. So there's nobody today on this call listening who can afford to be without this skill. It is critical. Now, I can give you another example that uh, I've worked with people, for example, who wanted to get a job in a very competitive situation, and it was a very technical, academic type of business. And I remember working with this person, and she said, you know, there's one opening, I want it, and 
the, it's just very competitive. So when I looked at her and I heard her presentation, I said, there is nothing compelling here that would make me want to hire you because she was simply giving a resume. She was very much in the weeds and talking about all these technical things. So she had to learn to mentally shift to what does the interviewer care about? And we looked at, well, what are the benefits of what she brings? What are the benefits of her versus somebody else? And how can she say that in a very clear, simple, compelling way? And end result, she got the job. So it's very exciting to me because I'm in the business of transformation. I'm helping people transform their lives through their communication. And this is the, the sad thing for me. When I see really smart, talented people who deserve to get what they want, but they can't because they don't know how to communicate it and how to position themselves. So when you are out there, think about this as a critical business skill. It's a leadership skill. and It's even a life skill because you want to be able to communicate in a way that the listener understands. So that was one example. I had somebody else come to me who was a an angel investor, and she was giving a talk in front of a large audience. When she came to me, it was so data-driven, meaning just getting through her introduction was two or three slides, and I thought, I'm bored. They're going to be bored. So I said to her, look, why don't we condense your introduction? What, what are the things that are important? And let the introducer put those credentials in. And then let's get right into the talk because they don't really care about everything that you've done. They want to know what's in it for me. So that's what we did. End result, she got a standing ovation. So it really is the difference between knowing how to present and not because People are, know their expertise. People are good at their jobs. But if you don't know how to present it in a way that people understand, you're not going to get what you want. So when we talk about positioning, how are you perceived in your company? Maybe you're not, maybe you're taken for granted. Maybe you're not seen as high or as valuable as you'd like people to be. Well, you can change that simply by the way you present yourself. This is why we have image consultants and people go out and they dress for success, but that's not enough. That's the cover of the book. You want to be able to then have them open the book because you have gained their attention, you've captured their interest, and you've kept their attention throughout. And this is the big challenge today. It's all about attention. It's all about mindset, finding space in the listener's mind. So how do you say something in a way that's going to get people interested and wanting to stay with you? And that is what we do. That is what giving a knockout presentation is all about. Here's the good news. Gifted speakers may be born, but effective speakers are made. So what I mean by that is anybody can learn these skills. So I want to make sure that people listening to this today have the confidence to know that it's a skill level. You can do it. It's a matter of knowing what the skills are and then practicing them. But it is so valuable and you'll get such a return when you invest in your presentation skills and you are not only looking the part but sounding the part. So here's a story that a managing director told us one time and she was 
in one of the investment banking firms. And she said that as she was coming up through the ranks, she wasn't getting the promotions she wanted. And they said, well, you know, you, I don't, we don't think you're tough enough. And she was shocked. She said, wait a minute. I'm from the Bronx, New York. I'm tough. So what she started to do was when she would speak to people, part of her presentation was helping manage their perception. And the way she did it is she would talk about how tough she was, and she'd give examples. Well, finally, after a period of time, with people hearing her presentation and hearing her talk about her, how she was tough, people would start to say, well, you know her. She's tough. So you have so much more power when you know how to present yourself, and you are deliberate, you're intentional, and you're strategic with it. So it's a really important skill. I can't emphasize it enough. That Those last two words you said, deliberate and intentional, I've, I've come across a number of folks in leadership positions and executive positions who think that it's about winging it, who are charismatic, who can speak to others well in an informal way, but when they get to a public speaking engagement, it's clear they haven't prepared. It's clear they haven't thought through the message. They just showed up trusting that their knowledge of business or the topic, whatever it was that they were about to present, they were fully unprepared for. They had not sat down to flesh out the issues. They mm -hmm. had not rehearsed in advance. They just thought they would get up on stage and everybody would be impressed. What can you tell us about that? <laughs> it is too common. It's, it's sad. The, here's the thing. I always remember this quote by Mark Twain, and he said something like, a, it takes two weeks to create a good impromptu talk. And it's so true. We talk about planned spontaneity. It, there's so much that goes into a talk. In fact, I always say it's 90% preparation, only 10% delivery. So there is a structure that you need to have in order to be effective, in order to get to the point, in order to be compelling. You've got to have a structure, and you need to think it through. And here's one of the things that someone said to me. They once said, well, it's really about confidence, right? Because if you're not confident, then everything else is okay. And I said, wait a minute. There are people who are confident and they're terrible presenters because they love the spotlight and they're bloviating and they have no idea that they're going in circles and boring people. So no, it's not all about confidence and delivery. It's all about structure. And I say to audiences that delivery sits on structure. It is so critical. It's like the foundation of a house. The house is only as good as the structure or the foundation. And same thing with a talk. So when someone seems like they're winging it or being at ease, but they're effective, you can bet that they practice. And that's why I have two chapters in my book on structure. It's actually a template where you can fill in the blanks because people need to know how to put their thoughts together. When people say to me, well, why do people come to you? I would say there are two basic reasons. One is 
delivery. A lot of it's confidence. People fear this, they're nervous, and so we work on that. But the other part is they don't know how to put their thoughts together and they can't get to the point. So you've got to be able to marry the three, the two. And I just slipped and said three because there's the delivery, there's the, there's the structure, and then there's the Q&A, the open part. And that's a bridge between the formal and the informal. So Again, too many people wing it when it's Q&A, and there's a process there. And I put a whole chapter on questions as well because there is a process. So the first thing that you want to do is to prepare for them. And so I'm going to give you a tip now. Prepare three lists of questions. List number one would have all the questions you expect to get, and then prepare your answer. List two are all the questions you don't know the answer to, and then find out. And then list three are all the questions that you dread. So those might be the questions where you are culpable or the company is at fault or it's politically sensitive. And then plan a strategy on how you're going to position that. So there's so much preparation that goes to any kind of presentation. It's the rare person who can get up there and do stream of consciousness and do it well. Tell us about yam. <laughs> you mean other than Thanksgiving? I, I'm a foodie, so some of my analogies are of food. But yam is a formula I created to simplify speaking because people overthink it and they complicate it. And I ask people, how is public speaking like a yam? And it's actually a formula for everything that you need to know about public speaking. Know yourself, know your audience, and know your message. And that's pretty much it. So first you want to start with yourself. Who are you as a package of skills? Because you don't want to be like somebody else. But what are your strengths? And play to them. If you're not funny, then don't try to tell jokes. Use the humor of the group. If, if you're a person who is spontaneous, then, then maximize that. But first know yourself and prepare. The second one is know your audience, and this is where I find most people don't spend enough time. You've got to know who is your listener and how do they like to receive information. So I also have a, a listener profile in the book so that you can start to think about and analyze who's in front of me. What are the demographics? What do they care about? Is there any past history I should know about? And that helps you to structure the talk. And then the Last one, know your message. Be really clear. And here's what happens with a lot of speakers, presenters, communicators. They get lost because they don't have clarity about their outcome. So before you start working in a PowerPoint slide, before you start scripting, do this. Fill in the blank. At the end of my presentation, the audience will blank. The answer to that is your outcome. So at the end of the presentation, the audience will agree to give me the promotion. Maybe that's a committee. At the end of the presentation, the audience will understand the three most important selling points. Be really clear. Just don't be like somebody in one of my audiences who said, at the end of the presentation, the audience will applaud. Well, that's very nice, but that is not an outcome. So by having an outcome, it's going to help you stay on message and keep your focus because lack of preparation and lack of focus are probably the two most common mistakes that speakers make. And by the way, I just did a YouTube series 
in line with the 12 days of Christmas, it's the 12 speak public speaking mistakes. So you can go to my YouTube channel, Diane Duresta, and you can find those there as well. What level of language is appropriate? I just heard an interview recently that said that the most effective speakers reach a maximum of sixth grade language in their conversations, in their presentations. What do you think? Yes, yes, and yes. It's somewhere between sixth and eighth grade. And I'll tell you a story. Advertisers use that theme. In other words, they target their language. They create language for a sixth or eighth grade audience or reading level. The reason is simplicity sells. And a confused mind says no. People should leave that that presentation with that idea or even write it down. A confused mind says no. So the clearer, the more simple you can be in your messaging, the more successful you're going to be. I was working with a high-level director in a healthcare company one time, and I was asked to work with him because he had a very extensive vocabulary, which was creating separation between him and the audience, and he didn't get to the point. He was very circuitous. So when I first started working with him, I asked him to start to speak more simply. We worked on sound bites, and I said, tell me what you think about the coaching, and he said, well, they want me to dumb it down. So he was not pleased that they were sending him, and so I tried to explain the whole point that I just made about clarity and simple language. So then we started to work on sound bites. And a sound bite is a quotable quote. Think of it as a tweet. Before we had tweets, we would say sound bites. But these are quotes that you can use that are simple sayings. Just a moment ago, I said a confused mind always says no. That's a sound bite. And when he worked on that to be more simple and to be more clear, I asked him what he thought. And he said, I think I sound slick. (laughs) Well, long story short, he ended up coming around. He did much better, and he became one of my best supporters and continued to hire me. But when people are starting to do things that are not within their comfort zone, they become very resistant. And when you're a brilliant person, you're questioning, well, why shouldn't I use this vocabulary? Because it doesn't communicate. You want to get clear, simple, so use short words. It's much more powerful. Even if you're communicating with a highly educated business audience, you should still stick, stick to very simple language? If your intention is to persuade, it's interesting you say that because I'm going to be working now with a CEO of a biotech company who's brilliant, and he has the same issue. And some of the people on the board are in that field and they understand the technology, but some don't. So the question is, who's the audience? So if you're in a scientific environment and you're talking to all all scientists and you're all peers, then you're probably going to be speaking at that level. But for most people, you want to speak more simply. You want to use smaller words and simpler language. So again, we go back to the audience. Now, speaking about the audience, Increasingly, this isn't just in an audience. I notice this everywhere I go. People's heads are either on a tablet or increasingly on a smartphone. They're not looking at you. They're not making eye contact. 
I find they're not even reading messages properly. How do you deal with that as a presenter? You know, I have to laugh because this is a nightmare for every speaker. And I've come to the conclusion that we're not going to change it that much. So I've started, you know, if you can't beat them, join them. So I've I've come to join the resistance. At the beginning of my presentations, when I'm setting up the, the room and telling them what we're going to be talking about, one of the things I say is, and my my Twitter handle is at speaking pro and I know that if I see someone on their phone it's because you're tweeting me and then they you know they start to laugh here's the best way to get people off their phones be so compelling that they start listening to you instead of the phone the other thing to do is to incorporate that more and more you're seeing presenters use polling because you're engaging them on their phone but they're engaged with you and Another thing with engagement is the more that you can get them moving or connecting with each other, the less time they're going to be on their phone. So I try to engage as most as much as possible by asking them to turn to their partner and do a quick exercise or by having a discussion or even getting people to stand. And I have a, an exercise that I do in the room to demonstrate that body language is the default communication. Many people have heard, and some have not, of the study by Professor Albert Morabian in UCLA. And what he did is he was studying one-on-one communication. Ideally, it was likability. But what he found was this, that when it comes to the visual, which is body language, the vocal, which is voice, and the words or the verbal, that body language won out every time. And he actually quantified these three levels. So in this one study, body language was 55% of the message, vocal or your voice was 38%, and your words were only 7 So people gasp when they hear this in the audience. And I always make a disclaimer, and I say this, Of course, your words are powerful, but here's what this study says to me, and this is why I continue to cite it. If there is a disconnect because you are either unprepared or nervous, and one of these three areas goes out of sync, now you've given off a double message. The audience doesn't know what to think, so body language becomes the message. So the first thing that I work on with people is their body language, how they walk into a room, how they take a seat at the table. And by the way, you may think that that's not critical, and it is, because your presentation begins the moment you walk into the room. So the question is, how do you create presence on the platform, whether your platform is a stage or whether it's a table or a boardroom, whatever? People make judgments by the way you comport yourself, how you hold yourself. And I've worked with young people, too. And when I say young, I'm talking about young managers. And when they were talking one-on-one with their groups, they were okay. But when they would have to present to senior management, they would derail. And that's when their managers would call me in. And I had this one person who was just too folksy and too casual. And I actually worked on a body language level with him, showing him how to take a seat at the table, how to sit, how to stand so that he would command respect and also to be more comfortable and confident. And it worked. So these are all the things that are important. And in terms of the voice, voice is very important because the meta message is in the voice, not in the words. So if you say 
I have a sentence riddle in the book, and it says something like, I didn't say you stole the money. And each word is emphasized. So I didn't say you stole the money is different from I didn't say you stole the money. So the tone is very important. And that's where people need to listen. And the mistake people make is they listen to the words. They think that's the true message. It's not. It's the tone and it's the body language. So here's the key. Effective speakers are congruent. That means that their visual, their vocal, and their verbal are all aligned. And when you are speaking and your body and your voice and your words are saying the same thing, that's when you have credibility and that's how you gain trust. So again, we go back to the return on investment with presentations. Who doesn't want to gain credibility and who doesn't want to be trusted by their stakeholders? Well, they're not going to trust you if something is out of sync. The good news is you can fix it. You can change it. So when you are consistent, when you're authentic and you're telling your story, you're going to be more trustworthy. Effective speakers are congruent and that builds credibility and trust. Who doesn't want to be credible and who doesn't want to be trustworthy? And so, again, we're coming back to that return on investment. These are skills. Even though they're called soft skills, they have a real value in the workplace. People are not going to move forward with your ideas. They're not going to follow your lead if they doubt you. And they're going to doubt you if your words and your tone and your body language don't match. Now, the good news is if you're a little nervous or if you're unaware, these can be changed. You can work with a coach. You can take a class. You can join Toastmasters. You can read a book. You can use your video on your smartphone and start to see how you're coming across. But this is all about image and first impressions. And the research shows that it takes about seven seconds or less to make a first impression. So it's about the moment you walk into a room. It's about creating presence. If we go back to YAM and what you just discussed, you have three aspects. You have you, the speaker, you have your message, and then you have the audience. And you can only control two-thirds of that because you have no control over the audience. Sometimes you might not even have a lot of information about your audience. What can you do to improve those odds? Because sometimes you might have a difficult audience, a hostile audience even. You can. You can improve your odds. And I'll, I'll tell you a story. Yes, we can't control others, but we can influence them. And that's what presentation skills does. It gives you influence. I remember when I was first working at this large multinational bank and I was going to be speaking to a group of MBAs. And what happened was these were credit trainees and I was preparing these speaking and writing modules. And finally, the day came when I was going to present. And unfortunately, their manager scheduled the first credit exam the day after my training. So they thought they were going to have that day to study, and they were furious. They were up in arms. And to make matters worse, the manager said, well, don't worry. You'll only be with Diane for an hour. 
No, we were scheduled for a full-day seminar. So now they were storming into the manager's room, and they were threatening to boycott my class. And I'll never forget, it was 4 p.m. that day. The manager called me personally to let me know what was happening, and he said, Diane, I wouldn't want to be in your shoes tomorrow. Whoa. This was my first corporate account. I didn't get any sleep that night, and I was thinking, well, maybe I should call in sick but I knew that would be career suicide. So I racked my brains. What could I do? Because I was walking into a lion's den. So here's what I did. The next morning I walked in and I said, what's important to you is time. You want to have time to study for your exam. What's important to me is quality. I want to be able to give you quality training. How can we make it work? And I remember I anchored them with body language, I took my hands and I clasped them in front of them, theirs and mine, and I made a visual anchor of us working together. And then I stepped back and I listened. And what we negotiated was a half day. I can tell you that I have never had a more focused cooperative group than I had that day. Now, I'd like to say going down the road that they were wonderful. They were not, but I was able to manage that situation. So the reason I tell you this story is, no, we can't control people, but we can manage and influence them. And that was an example of how you set something up. You, you want to name the elephant in the room. The worst thing is to ignore it. Because then the tension builds, and that's when you get the difficult people. So it's understanding what is the underlying need, because we all have difficult people in the workplace. So instead of looking at them as, oh, that nitpicker, oh, that person who always grabs the spotlight, ask yourself, what is it that they need? And once you identify that, that gives you the strategy for handling them so that they'll be cooperative during your presentation. And I have all of these in the book on the Q&A section. So, for example, if you have an expert, this is the person who's always telling you what they know. Well, what is it they really need? They want recognition. So give it to them. When I've had an expert I do this all the time. As soon as I recognize that person, I'll, I'll call on them early and I'll say, well, you know, you've been out there for a number of years. What have you experienced? And so what happens is they get what they need and then they settle down and they're cooperative and everybody else gets time to talk. So, yes, knowing your audience starts there and sometimes you're thrown in cold and you don't know. And that's the difference between prevention and intervention. I would prefer prevention every time. And the way you get to preventing these disasters is by knowing the audience up front and preparing. When that's not the case, you can still have these tools in your toolbox to intervene and manage and influence what's happening right there. The worst thing that anyone can do as a presenter is to attack and get defensive. Keep in mind that there is this rule of group dynamics and when you stay confident and in control, what happens is the group then starts to come to your defense. So if someone is coming at you and coming at you and coming at you and you stay calm, even though they're yelling, what will happen is someone in the group will say, hey, give someone else a chance or enough of that. You know, there are other people here who want to participate. So it's better that it comes from the group than from you. So those are just a few things that you can think about 
when you talk about the audience and how much control you have. You have more influence than you might think. What do you do when you have a restless audience, an audience that isn't listening but is having conversations so that you're having to raise your voice in order for the group to hear you? Do you stop until they quiet down? Well, there are a number of things you can do. If it's a couple of side talkers, you can address them by saying, well, did you have a question? Or you can stop talking altogether, and then when people hear the silence, they start to look up. Or you can walk over in the direction of the side talkers and still continue speaking, and then they'll get the idea. If the problem is the audience is restless, then you need to do something different. You might need to take a break. You might need to get them up. And, and moving. Sometimes they need to do something physical, or you can create a discussion. So let's say you're on a topic and they're tuning out. Start asking questions. You know, what's your thought on that? How many people have ever done this? What do you think of what Joe just said? When people are engaged, they're not restless. The fact that they're restless means they're probably not engaged or what you have to say is not interesting to them. So change what you're doing. Which brings me to perhaps a question I should have asked earlier, which is how can you tell? Sometimes you look down at the audience and people aren't looking at you. Some people are looking at you, but they have this dazed look in their face that makes you think they're somewhere else. And some people, you can't actually tell whether they're listening to what you're saying or not. It's, it can be difficult to read mm-hmm. the audience Well, again, there as well, excuse me, you can't always know what what they're thinking. And here's a typical example. I have a friend who was giving this keynote address, and he thought he was rocking the room. He was feeling it was great. And every time he would look over, there was this one man who would be nodding off. And he would try harder and harder, and he would still start falling asleep. And he started to doubt himself, thinking, well, maybe I'm not at the top of my game. So he finishes his keynote, and afterwards, the man who was falling asleep came up to him, and he said, I thought you were great. I really loved your presentation. I have to apologize. I was on the red eye from Japan, and I didn't get much sleep. But I thought you were great. So... Don't give so much power to the audience. You can't always tell what the meaning is. It may look like they're not engaged, but they may be taking it in. Some people don't aren't expressive. So you're thinking, well, how, how come they're not smiling? They may not be expressive people, but they may be taking it all in. So I would say in that case, do your best to engage people. And you can, if, if it's a training situation, you can always ask a question. How is this sounding so far? Or what do you think of what we just said? If it's a large group and you don't have that, don't take it personally. I always say to people that I'm coaching or speaking to, don't give the audience so much power. If you're getting someone who's scowling, don't keep coming back to them. Look at your true believers. Look at the people who are giving you the positive reinforcement because that will boost your confidence. What about materials? So often I watch people put these slides that make my eyes blurry with the amount of text that they have in there. Mm-hmm. Well, 
picture, the Chinese had it right when they said a picture speaks a thousand words. You're better off having photos, pictures, graphics, and keywords. This is, again, my challenge, especially in corporate America, because they have templates. And I can tell people not to do things, but this is their company template they have to follow. So what I try to do there is minimize. So you're better off having single words or phrases but not complete sentences and not a paragraph. And take out words like articles, the, and, uh. You don't need those things. Key words, key phrases, and lots of graphics and pictures are what will help people get the message. Animation is good. Short videos are good. But, yeah, I I don't recommend anybody putting all of those words on a slide because here's the thing. I know it's people's comfort zone, but when an audience has a choice of reading the slide or listening to you, guess which they choose? They will always read ahead of you. And so when you have all those words on a slide, you have just made yourself obsolete because they can read ahead of you. And if they can read everything then why do they need you? There should be some keywords there or phrases, but you need to fill in the blanks. So don't give them the whole paper. Now, the other side of that are the people who can't focus their attention on what you're saying because they're so distracted because they're taking notes. Mm-hmm. What do you do so- with those guys? All right, so it depends on what you want from your audience, and this is the part of prevention. You need to say up front how you expect to work with people. So sometimes a presenter will say, you don't need to take notes. You're going to get a copy of the slides. Or uh, you'll, you'll, you'll have a chance to take notes in a moment, but at this point I'm going to ask you to put the pens down and be participative. So you can do that. The other piece, too, is realize that everybody is a different learner, and if you're a visual learner, you may be the kind of person who needs to write. So allow people to do that if they need to. There may be a a couple of people who need to do that. But if the whole audience is doing that, I would let them know they're not in a college lecture hall. And, again, if you engage people, they're not going to be able to write so get them involved in a discussion. Get them involved in an exercise. Tell a story. I can't tell you how valuable stories are. You, you're not going to write down every word of a story. You're going to be engaged. So start with a story. End with a story. Put a story in the middle. Ask them to tell their stories. And, and that's how you get people away from their phones and their writing instruments. Tell us a little bit more about this audience research and how you adapt to your audience if you have a particular kind of audience and you are a particular kind of speaker what things can you do say for example if there are cultural issues if you're traveling overseas if you're addressing a particular specialized audience if there is a gender issue how do you approach those Again, by preparing and knowing that YAM formula and focusing on the audience. The more you know about the audience in advance, the better. If you're going to be speaking overseas or if you have a very multicultural audience, you want to get some coaching or some tips from people who have done that already, who know this audience have and have spoken to the audience. So, for example, 
you need to adjust your expectations. If you're talking to an Asian audience, know that they are not going to challenge you because that would be disrespectful to the authority. And so you're probably not going to get a lot of questions and conversation. But here's how you can get around it. Put them in small groups and ask them to discuss in their groups. They will not necessarily challenge you or ask a direct question often, but they will do that. So it's knowing how how cultures communicate and then meeting them where they are and adjusting your expectations. You need to be very careful about your language when you are speaking to people from different countries. For example, there is the A-OK sign that we use in the U.S. to say, yeah, good job, A-OK. That same gesture is an obscenity in Brazil. (laughs) So you either have to know who's in the audience or not use that gesture at all. And, again, body language has different meanings sometimes, so uh, words as well. So you need to be careful. So, for example, we have a fanny pack, right? We know what a fanny pack is. It's that little pouch that you put around your waist when you're jogging. That is a female body part in the U.K., and you're going to get a lot of laughter uh, if you say that. I remember when I was speaking in the U.K. for the first time, I said something about, so these are some management skills you can use back on the job. And I would start to get this twittering, you know, this tweet, this little giggling. And then I realized that at that time, on the job was equivalent to turning a trick. So I didn't know that. But you, you need to be so careful about your language. So the more you know, the better. Example, if in the U.K., they say schedule instead of schedule. They'll say diary instead of calendar. So having that in your repertoire helps. Also, if you're speaking overseas, you need to know the difference between consecutive and simultaneous translation. But I strongly recommend that you learn a few words in their language and open up with that. When I was in Tanzania, I learned a few words of Kiswahili, and I memorized, uh, good morning, I'm happy to be here. And that was my opening, and I got applause, and I was really surprised. But they appreciated that I did that. So the more you can enter their culture and show respect and show interest and curiosity and be respectful, the better. But it takes practice, and it takes a lot of research. And I don't mean scientific research, but you need to prepare and understand the culture. There are some books that you can get. You can also find that online. If you tweet or if you Google a certain country and the culture, there's something called Culture Grams that comes from Brigham University in Utah that you can get. And there are a number of books now on how to speak across cultures. What advice do you give specifically to women presenters so that they can gain some of that credibility and the trust that you were talking about in audiences that are less respectful and more hostile toward women, especially women in leadership? Well, you know, as soon as you said that, first of all, this is a subject near and dear to my heart because I really love empowering women, and I'm working with women who are new CEOs, and they have some 
changes they need to make in order to be credible. Here's the thing we know about gender parity. There's a double standard. We're not going to change that right away. There is an unconscious bias. So we first have to be aware of it and then work with it. And the research shows that women leaders who use both a female and male style of leading, a balance, do much more or are much more effective and do better as leaders than women who use an all-masculine type of style, and they do better than men who use, say, just a feminine style. So it's that balance that's important, and that's what will help you get respect. I always say to women leaders, you cannot outman a man, so don't be like a man, but use both the yin and the yang, the female and the male uh, leadership skills. So that would be, you know, empathy, decisiveness, those kinds of things, blending them. But when you're in a culture that doesn't respect women, that's really difficult. I remember when I was working at this international bank in New York, we had some trainees who were from a different country, and they did not respect women in leadership roles. And I remember the accounting instructor was a woman, and they said, we don't listen or we don't learn from a woman. And she said to them, well, if you want accounting, I'm it. So she had a certain power there because they were going through a credit training program and you were either going through it or you weren't. There was no negotiation. The, the best thing I can say is prepare yourself by talking to others. Again, speak a few words in their language. Try to be respectful so, for example, if you are speaking in a country where, you know, women are covered, then wear longer skirts or pantsuits or whatever will be more acceptable. And it's not an easy thing, but, it, again, it has to do with preparation and also getting the support of your host. If you're speaking in front of a, a culture such as someone who doesn't have a lot of respect for women in leadership, there's a reason you're there. Someone invited you, so use them to support and catapult you to a more acceptable level. What about multicultural issues? Even within the, within the United States, we have a very diverse population, and there are notable differences increasingly sometimes between states, between political parties, mm -hmm. and so forth. How can you manage that to a most effective advantage? If you can't change your audience, how can you be aware of those multicultural factors and at the same time be effective, have that audience trust and credibility? Well, first, stay away from politics. <laughs> you don't want that to be part of the mix. But I believe the golden rule, do as to others as you would want done unto yourself. In other words, if you show respect and you really care about the people in front of you, they feel that. And you're going to have a better rapport with them when you come from that mindset. So instead of thinking of the audience as adversarial, be curious. You know, what are their cultures like? When I was speaking to a group of young women, this was years ago, I think it was called International House, and they were there to learn from me. But I would always ask them, so what is eye contact like in your country? Well, how, how do you gesture in your country? And they were so taken aback and so appreciative that I would ask those questions. So sure, show a curiosity, show respect, 
And the more you can know about people's backgrounds, the better. Now, if it's a mixed group and it's multicultural, you have to pretty much stay in the middle and talk about your subject. But be careful of certain idioms that we might use in the U.S. that could be taken in the wrong way. And I, it, it's not always easy to think about, but we are so politically correct now. You, you need to be careful of your language and the examples that you give. And, and the same thing with gender. If you have a mixed audience, it's different. When you have an all-male audience or an all-female audience, you can tell certain stories or use certain humor that is more appropriate for them. So, for example... I was in a mixed group, and I was uh, there was a presenter who was talking about listening, and he gave the sports analogy, and then he gave a second sports analogy, and then he gave a third sports analogy. At that moment, a woman raised her hand and said, well, how does this technique work with women? Now, if that had been a male group, he could have given 10 sports analogies. So the types of stories, the types of analogies, the kind of language that you use, the humor that you use, will vary depending on the gender. So when it's mixed, you don't want to go either way. You want to pr be pretty much neutral so that it'll be effective for both. How do you deal with this fear that you talked about at the beginning that I think most speakers suffer from to varying degrees, this terror that speakers feel before they go up on the podium, before they address their audience. Even very experienced, very seasoned speakers talk of always being afraid. Are there any recommendations? Are there any exercises that you could recommend? Absolutely, and I wrote a whole chapter on fear fixes. And there are four categories uh, that you can use, physical, mental, behavioral, and chemical. And this is a myth that you should not be nervous. I think a little bit of nervousness is a good thing because all it is is energy. And it's that adrenaline rush that's getting you ready for a performance. I'm sure athletes, before they go out and do that run or whatever sport they're playing have a little bit of butterflies because they're they're getting they're getting geared up so it's not that you should have no nervousness it's is the nervousness paralyzing you is the nervousness causing you to avoid is the nervousness causing you to trip up that can be managed and here's one of the things that people need to realize that the first thing that you need to work with is mindset. And when I work with people, I work in two ways, mindset and, and skill set. You have to have them both. And most of the time, when somebody is nervous, I know one or two things. First, they're living in the future. And the way I know that is they're thinking of everything that could go wrong. Oh, I hope I don't trip. Oh, I hope I don't screw up. So you need to come back to the present moment. And one of the best ways to get present is through the breath. So we do a lot with breathing exercises. And by the way, there are lots of apps now, meditation apps that you can use, which are really good for centering and especially before a presentation. But right before you go on, you need to do some deep breathing and clear your mind. You can also work with affirmations because what people are saying to themselves is that 
they're they're living in not only the future, but they're saying things that are negative, and they're saying things like, "Well, I hope I don't lose my train of thought." Or I'm just not a good speaker. I can't wait for this to be over. So you want to stop that. You want to use positive language. And you also want to get over yourself. And I say that to audiences. Get over yourself. It's not about you. It's about them, the audience. So the other thing that I know, in addition to living in the future, you're being self-centered. Because if you're nervous, it's all about me, myself, and I. No. It's about them. So take the focus off yourself and think about, well, what does this audience need? What can I give them? How can I make them feel more comfortable? And I always like to think of myself as the host or hostess in front of a group. And how can I warm them up? How can I make them feel comfortable? One of the ways I do that is I get there early and I greet people when they come in, which is one technique that makes you feel more confident because you now have some faces. You've, sh- you've shaken hands. You've exchanged a few words. Believe me, they're on your side. We make the audience adversarial and they're not. Yes, there are hostile audiences. That's a whole different thing. But most of them are not. And here's the other thing I find, especially with people at a junior level. They get very intimidated because they think, well, you know, I'm talking to senior management. I'm this little peon. No, you're not. There is always a balance of power, and that is changing. You are there because they want your information. You're there to give an update. That manager doesn't know that, and that's why you're there. And so own that. And at that moment, you are in the power position because you have information that they don't have. So take that, own that, and that will give you confidence. You're not there to be judged. You're there to communicate. Most of the judgment is always is coming from the presenter. So own your power. There are other things you can do in terms of nervousness. Physical activity helps. Because, again, if it's building inside of you, you might want to walk rapidly, take a a walk before you know it's time to go into that meeting. You want to, again, focus on the deep breathing, and most importantly, you want to manage your mind. But the number one way to manage nervousness is to prepare. That is number one. The more prepared you are, the better. And then let go and realize you know your material. And if you forget something, it's okay. Part of your preparation is your recovery strategies. And a recovery strategy is what's your worst nightmare? What could happen that might make you feel like you're derailing? So one time I asked a woman in the audience and I said to her, all right, what's your biggest fear? Well, when I get up on that platform, what if I trip on the the wire? So I said, all right, well, what, what if you did? What could you say or do? How about saying to the audience, I want you to know I've been practicing that entrance for weeks. Or never let it be said, I don't know how to make an entrance. Now, if you trip and then you say that, your audience is going to laugh. Why? Because at the moment you trip, they are tense. It does not feel good. And when you make light of it, they start to laugh and they relax. And they'll have even more respect for you. So it's not about avoiding mistakes. Things happen. But it's how do you recover when something goes wrong. And I've had my situations as well. I remember I was at a concert at the Ryman Theater. And there were these two men singing. And 
at one point, one of them hit a bad note and his voice cracked. And, and you can feel the tension. You feel really badly when that happens. So after he finished the number, instead of going on to the next one, he said to the audience, I want to thank the audience for seeing me through puberty. Well, everybody roared. It was funny. And we had so much respect for him after that. So it's, you're allowed to make a mistake. It will happen. It's how do you recover. That is the sign of a master. And with all of these things, it takes practice. It takes knowledge. It takes skill. So give yourself a pat on the back. Make it a, a New Year's goal or resolution to get good at speaking, at public speaking, at presenting yourself. It's all available to you. Why, going back to the beginning, are we saying that public speaking is the new competitive advantage has it always been the competitive advantage? What's changed? People who have good presentation skills have always had an advantage, but today it's critical. You can't avoid the skill for the reasons that I said earlier, which, which are that it's more competitive. There's more noise out there, so the ability to be heard is harder. And Everything is a commodity. Everybody can get something and duplicate it so easily. And so it's about how do I stand out? How do I be seen and heard and be visible? It's through your presentation. They're going to remember you. And if there are any entrepreneurs listening, speaking is one of the most cost-effective and powerful marketing tools. If you're not an entrepreneur and you work for a company, it's still a marketing tool because we all need to market market ourselves. And whether you realize it or not, you're marketing yourself all the time by the way that you show up. So you can show up powerfully when you know how to present yourself and you have good public speaking skills. And it's really critical because of all the noise and competition. For those of our listeners who are interested in taking the next step and revisiting public speaking if they've done it in the past and perhaps didn't enjoy it or felt they weren't so good or perhaps they were okay but it's been a while what three steps would you suggest that they take to reacquaint themselves to get back on the horse well I'm glad you said to if if it's been a while because we all need to refresh It's not that you're done. There's always a higher level, and I'm always working on my skills as well. So the first thing is to make a decision that you are going to make this a goal, that you're going to improve your skills. You can get my book, Knockout Presentations, which you will find online. You can sign up for a course, and you can go to my website, DearResta.com. You can watch videos. I have over 109 videos on my YouTube channel, Diane DeResta. Or start watching TED Talks, TED.com. You'll see some of the top speakers. Not only will you learn something, but you will see some good skills that you can model. But also decide on who you think is a good speaker and model from them. And then if you have no opportunity to speak, go to a Toastmasters class and go twice a month and start to learn and get your speaking wings and start to feel more confident. So reading books will give you the skills. Watching videos will help you to model. Practicing the skills either through Toastmasters, through taking a class, or through starting small. Offer 
to present if you don't have an opportunity in your company. You can do a lunch and learn. You can do an update at a meeting, offer to speak on a panel. There are so many different ways that you can show up. And you can start in your community if you don't want to start at work. You can talk at the public library. You can talk to a local church or synagogue. People are always looking for speakers. Thank you, Diane, for joining us from New York, New York. Thank you. And to our audience, you have been listening to Diane DeResta, CSP, who is author of Knockout Presentations, How to Deliver Your Message with Power, Punch, and Pizzazz, who discussed why public speaking is the new competitive advantage. Please share your suggestions, questions, and ideas by leaving a comment on the HispanicNPR.com website. If you or someone you know would like to be on the show, you can email me directly at editor at hispanicmpr.com. That's editor at hispanicmpr.com.